Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, September 17th, 2020. I'm John Potwartz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, Noah Rothman is out today. We are delighted to have joining us as a guest uh, for the first time, Fox News political editor. True. True. Christopher Chris Steyerwalt. Yes. Uh, polymath, bon vivant, <laughs> West Virginian. Uh, yes. And there are very few West Virginia bon vivants. Actually, in West Virginia, if you identify as a bon vivant, <laughs> they will drop you from a bridge. Just <laughs> okay, fair enough. And, uh, and co-host of one of the great podcasts, I'll Tell You What, with Dana Perino. So if you aren't listening to that, you guys should certainly listen to that. Anyway, Chris, as a man who knows everything, we are thrilled to have you because we know nothing. And so I'm oh. going to show you, I'm going to show you that we know nothing because I want to ask you to begin with about um, this really weird, it's not really a poll, uh, oh uh, but it's this, um, it's this USC, uh, I, I keep thinking it's Dorn's Life, but I don't think it's, Dorn, it's the Dor- from the Dornsife School of Government at the University of Southern California. Right. Okay. So this, this thing is a panel, if I understand it, yes. of 6,000 people. And they survey them or some elements of them every day and then measure the change over a week. And so there's a daily result, but it's only half of the panel. Anyway, the whole point is it's not really a poll because it's the same 6,000 people measured over the course of a year. Do I have that right? Yeah, I love how you're like, well, we don't know anything. Now let me, in minute detail, describe all of the components of this panel. And the other thing that's laughable, we don't know anything. I'm talking to Christine Rosen, who knows so much, who knows everything. She knows so much that she doesn't say anything. She's so smart and knows everything that she waits and holds her shots to destroy her enemies at a distance. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, that is right. Okay, so when I say we don't know anything, here's what I I don't know. know. Okay, so I can explain it. So it's like this. There are lots of things that you could do to try to foretell an election's outcome. You could cook chicken bones in a pot until they cracked. You could uh, go uh, to Delphi and summon the Oracle. You could do a lot of things. One of the things that we most commonly do are called probability polls in which you try to find a sample that reflects the electorate as you think it will be. So when Fox News does a poll, when legitimate pollsters do a poll, they start with a series of assumptions. We think that there will be this many white people, this many black people, this many women, this many men, this many people who earn more than this, this many people who earn less than this, and all of the demographic stuff. And then you make phone calls until you have a representative sample. Let's say it's 1,100 people. You find 1,100 people nationally who match what our estimation based on census data, 2016 uh, turnout, and all the other factors that we can put into it, this is what we think the electorate's going to look like. Uh, and then you ask them what they think. What USC did in 2016 and are doing again in 2020 is they have 6,000 people and they are more like, think of them more like a focus group. They come into this project 
And they agree that every other week they will communicate by whatever means they choose with the with people who are running the survey over the it's so it's a it's a longitudinal survey of 6000 voters. Now the reason it's not a poll is and I always forget the name of it but there's a sociological version of the Heisenberg effect that mm-hmm. came from an early efficiency project at a Chicago factory but the but the point being when people know they're being observed they behave differently than they do when they think that they're not. So you just put it this way, people are great. And if you've ever served on a jury or covered a court case, you know people are great. If you say to somebody, I want you to take this seriously and participate in this process, they do. So they're gonna watch the news more closely, they're going to think about their opinions more carefully, and that's gonna persist over the lifespan. So that is part of what makes it not a poll. But it's useful in its own way, in the same way that betting markets can be useful uh, in the same way that tracking campaign contributions can be useful. These are all things that you can look at. to Because here's what I always want to know. Is it moving? Is it changing? And so right. if you see changes in that in the Dornsife thing, if, if you took 6,000 people not at random, you, would, you could still learn something uh, if the people were changing. Right. Okay. So this, this poll, so, so this probabilistic... Focus six thousand person focus group over time, which, uh, as I'm looking at it, uh, basically the, the the chart that they have right in front of me begins in on August seventeenth and goes to the present. So it's a you know it's basically a month, and they they show an extraordinarily steady race in which uh, Biden is slightly over fifty, and Trump is slightly over forty. But in the last two or three days, uh, Trump in this survey is now down 6.75. Biden's at 50.21. Trump's at uh, 43.49. And they have this gray bar between them that they say means if if these numbers are in the gray bar, the difference between the two is not statistically significant and it's a jump ball basically. Right. So the numbers are not in the gray are not in the gray bar, but they're, they're closing in on the gray bar. <laughs> That's okay. how I would put it. Okay. Yeah, uh, the Biden number is a little bit above the gray bar and the Trump number is a little below the gray bar. And at some point, pretty much last week, uh, Biden was like 12 points up on Trump and here, He's not. So this is measuring something that people seem to feel without that much evidence, which is that the race is tightening. Well, no, the race, the race has tightened. Uh, and the tightening started before the conventions as Republicans came home. Um, there are, so Donald Trump won in 2016, basically for three reasons. Uh, he won because he outperformed traditional Republicans with white working class voters. We see it in places like Lucerne County, Pennsylvania, Erie County, Pennsylvania, Genesee County, Michigan, all across eastern Wisconsin. Donald Trump outperforms with voters who are traditionally part of the Democratic coalition, working class whites. Uh, you Whites without college degrees, people with household incomes under $70,000, however you want to slice it. Donald Trump did better with those voters. Um, it's a shrinking pool, but... 
it's he he really hit it out of the park in part because white voters in 2016 the the long term assumption I don't want to go too far in the weeds here but if you remember after the 2004 election or contemporaneous to the 2004 election Rui Teixeira uh, and John Ju- I think it was John Judas had a book mm-hmm. the emerging democratic majority and they talked basically about how Hispanic the influx of Hispanic voters would eventually doom the Republican Party because Republicans were so stovepiped with white voters. What they didn't count on was the fact that white people could come to vote like an ethnic minority themselves and vote at 75% Republican, right? Mm-hmm. That they had not yet reached the ceiling. And Trump really helped them reach the ceiling or beyond the ceiling with those voters. So that's one. But and then the other reason is Hillary Clinton underperformed what she should have done in places like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Milwaukee. She didn't do what she should have done. They had a poor turnout uh, among traditional Democratic voters. But the third and probably most important part here is more than half of the national electorate lives in a suburb. And Donald Trump did about as well in the suburbs. as He underperformed a little bit, but he kept them mostly. And you can basically put the electorate into those three chunks and and the fight is for is for them. Um, what happened for Trump going into the into the primaries was that he had been slacking with white males and underperforming with white males and white males, a lot of them without college degrees, were like, no, it's Trump. And so we saw in our latest Fox News poll has the race at five. Um, and obviously there's margin of error here, um, but has the race at five. I think there has I think there has been tightening as Republicans have come home. But what Trump has to be what Republicans really have to be careful about are two things. Biden's not coming down. If Biden is really at 51 percent, then the polls are understating both candidates, whatever they are in the average of polls. If you take the average of five polls like we do in the halftime report every day, five methodologically sound polls, most recent, they will both probably outperform what their final polling average is. So you're looking, if Biden's at 50, he's going to win. And Hillary Clinton couldn't get there and she couldn't stay there. We watched the wrong candidate in 2016. Donald Trump goes up and down. He gets in fights with gold star families. He calls the lady Miss Piggy. He does all of the Trumpo things. And we watched him take this Mr. Toad's wild ride through the election. But we weren't paying attention to Hillary Clinton, who was stuck at 47% and could not move even when her opponent was talking about grabbing people's genitals. So if we look at Biden and not Trump, we see that Biden is doing real well. Christine. Oh, so here's, I think that that's such an excellent synopsis and it really helps frame the question going in, which is I feel like this election cycle, although we have, we've all kind of learned the lessons of 2016, I feel like we're more ignorant going into this election because it's not so clearly like the forgotten man versus the suburban mom, you know, the suburban college educated mom there. And this is why we've ended up lapsing into shy Tory talk a lot on the podcast. I mean, the the question of the upheaval caused by both the pandemic lockdown and the economic hardship, as well as the, you know, recent civil unrest, violence and riots um, strikes me as really going either way with those suburban ladies in particular. Um, the polls keep showing that they're steadily on board with Biden, but have you seen any signs that maybe that that kind of that factor isn't as as um, firm as it was for uh, say even Hillary four years ago? The steadiness is that is that 
not as steady as we think it is, or or should we rely on that as a pretty good measure? Biden's Biden. real. Biden's real steady. Okay. Uh, his his numbers are real steady. Uh, they're slacking Trump's line, and if Trump has a, you know, l- let's face it, Donald Trump won in twenty sixteen because of the excess Hollywood tape, because it was so bad. He became well. Uh, Donald Trump is like the children of Israel. He worships the golden calf. He does everything wrong. He misbehaves in every way. The, 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 bad, the bad children. Well, no, no, until they become, until they despair, right? <laughs> when they were Baal worshippers, right? <laughs> we will do anything. And Moses says, just melt down the daggone calf and do right. And here are the commandments. And do, and they're like, we totally do this. And then he turns his back for 10 minutes. And they're like, we, we made the calf again. We did, we did it. We, we love it so much. We're, twe- we're tweeting about the golden calf. So... Trump became willing to be willing. He became willing to listen. And if you remember, um, I called it the, uh, not that you remember what I called it, but uh, I called it his uh, Gettysburg uh, redress of grievances. And he went to Gettysburg, he gave this speech, and it was very Gingrichian. It was all about the judges, and it was about this. He, he first he started out and said they were too ugly to sexually harass, and then he went off prompter and became a conventional Republican candidate for the closing two and a half weeks of the campaign. And then James Comey, who's just so good at being the FBI director, was like, ooh, Hillary's going to win, and then I'm going to be in huge trouble. So I'm going to drop this uh, bomb that has Anthony Weiner and uh, Kitty Porn in it right into the closing week. And I firmly believe that if it had not been for that order of events, that if Donald Trump had been in the news in the closing two weeks, he would have lost. But instead, it was her turn in the barrel. It just the sine waves crossed at the right point. Um, we will be wrong about the pollsters and analysts will be wrong about the 2020 election in some way that we do not know about. Republicans have, as an article of faith, their belief that they are undercounted in polls. This is not a new thing. The shy Trump vote is the same as the shy Romney vote, is the same as ever and anon. I assume that in 1960, the Nixon people said the polls are missing Nixon voters. Um, And it has ever been thus. It, It is part of the Republican. Republicans hate the media more than they hate Democrats. And they don't believe that polls uh, are accurate. I always point them to 2012. In 2012, the polls were more wrong nationally than they were in 2016. And on a, uh, they were more wrong in the most important swing state of Florida. And guess what? They understated Obama substantially. If you remember on election night in 2012, when Karl Rove said to us, no, 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 you can't call Ohio yet. What we wanted to say to Karl Rove on election night at Fox News was, if you don't like that, wait five minutes when we call Florida. Um, (laughs) The polls will always be wrong because we will make some wrong assumptions. The wrong assumption, I don't want to get too into this stuff, but it was a Pew study, very revealing. The reason that the state polls missed to the degree they did, and part of it wasn't that they missed, it's just that the race closed really late for Trump. He made up a lot of ground at the end, especially in Wisconsin. But where the polls were wrong were that they overcounted college-educated whites were much more likely to respond to pollsters than white people without college degrees. White people without college degrees are busier. They have more jobs. They don't have as much leisure time. They may be more skeptical of pollsters. But that's just true all the time. That's not true because of Trump or not because of Trump. 
So what was happening in these states where that the bucket was filling up, the bucket of white people was filling up with too many college-educated white people and therefore undercounting non-college whites. Now all of the pollsters in these states have corrected for that, probably overcorrected would be my guess, but have corrected for it. Hey, I have a theory. <clears throat> what if Trump is not entirely running against Biden? Biden's steady. And uh, if the thinking is we should be looking at Biden, Biden's being steady is bad news for Trump. What if Trump is also running against, really, um, because Biden's campaign has been, Biden has been um, much less visible than most presidential nominees and because of the nature of the pandemic and whatnot, and uh, uh, because um, Biden doesn't actually offer that much in terms of um, new rhetoric. Um, what if Trump is also running against the unrest um, as that connects to the Democrats? As Certainly, that's what he's trying to run against, right? Yeah. And in that sense, um, there's a poll out uh, I think yesterday from Pew, right, about the popularity of Black Lives Matter. Right. And if we take Black Lives Matter as a stand in for um, the sort of the civil unrest um, that that is now um, been with us since late May uh, in June, 60 uh, percent of white Americans said they supported Black Lives Matter. As of today, it's 45 percent. Um, what if that dropping, that drop in support is significant for Trump and, and, and continues, if that drop continues as, um, as the unrest in cities continues, um, what if that is the, is the, the sort of um, the metric we should be watching? Abe's saying maybe, you know, uh, the black light, the uh, law and order, you're saying the law and order critique is beginning to work in, in, in Nevada and other places. Uh, Abe's wondering if, if, uh, Trump is uh, doing kind of successful bank shot running against not Biden precisely, but in ways that were down against Biden. How about this theory, which would also explain Biden's incredible steadiness, which is the election is already over. The theory that Trump can prevail in this election is based on trends and things that are simply not going to get picked up in the, in the social science data. Uh, by definition, you almost say because the white, as you said, the white working class isn't going to answer the phone or is, doesn't have time or whatever. And Republicans are underestimated and that sort of thing. And so therefore, if Trump's going to win, he's going to win simultaneously. If Biden's going to win, it's because the data are measuring this accurately. Most of the states that are leaning toward the Democratic Party in which Biden is winning by two or three He'll win, in which case he could win as many as 370 electoral votes. And so one way or the other, uh, the steadiness of these numbers, Trump in the low 40s on approval, Biden around 50 uh, in the national polls and up in, I don't know what it is, 35 states or something like that, some very high number. I mean, serving, hmm? yeah, right. So that basically the race is over and that nothing that happens Issue-wise, <laughs> policy-wise, or anything is going to matter, and that's what we're going to see on November fourth. Uh, Trump, Trump is going to put himself himself into a second term, or Biden is going to blow it out, and they'll debate, 
and we'll talk and we'll talk about COVID and we'll talk about this and none of it matters. Well, I, I have said before that the 2020 electorate uh, is like the digestive system of a goose and it just doesn't hold on to anything for very long. Uh, I know that's not the kind of, I, I know you guys don't work your, very your well imagery, Your imagery. No, I, 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 I cursed somebody out yesterday, so it's fine. But your, your imagery takes us into a different, less Jewish realm than we are, than we use. Goose poop, goose poop is not usually part He's, of your experience. You're going to get us canceled by the foie gras crazies, you know? <laughs> right. <That's> just, exactly. <laughs> I'm not saying the goose is being fed corn. I'm not saying it's being fed corn. Um, so here's the deal. We like to think so. Uh, the uh, Wouldn't it be pretty to think so? That everything is determined and all of that stuff. But no one, almost no one who is listening to this podcast is an undecided voter. And almost no one who is watching AM Joy is an undecided voter. So you can think of the electorate very broadly in three groups. You have people who will never vote for a Republican. You have people who will never vote for a Democrat. And then you have a third of the people, the governing third, that range from those who usually vote for Democrats, but sometimes will vote for a Republican, over to those folks who usually vote for a Republican and sometimes will vote Democratic. We like the image because it's so in the in the hellscape uh, narrative that we have developed for American politics of this, you know, Mitch, what is Mitch McConnell sitting on his throne of skulls? Uh, in this version that we have, all votes are already spoken for. But we learned all the wrong lessons from 2016. The right lesson from 2016 is there's a ton of persuadable voters out there, right? There's tons and tons of persuadable voters out there who vote. Americans are wonderful. We're a great tangle of contradictions in our beliefs. If you're ideological, you're not a, you're not a persuadable voter, right? All of the people who are Republicans, who are staunch pro-life, who are low taxes, conservative judges, though Josh Hawley, I don't know, but like all of these Republicans who are, are that way, they're not voting for Joe Biden. They're not going to go vote for Joe Biden. And the people who have opinions on the left side in the same way aren't going to vote for Donald Trump. But what's amazing is for those folks in the middle, they're a lot less ideological. They pay a lot less attention. They find politics to be a necessary evil that seeps in through the cracks, right? Oh, it's an election year. Oh, I'm getting all this mail. You know, the reason they spend all that money on direct mail, the reason they spend all that money on Facebook ads, the reason that the poor people of Pennsylvania are going to be inundated with so many hundreds of millions of dollars worth of ads is because there really are a lot of people who are actually persuadable and they can be well, persuaded how to vote, number one, but more importantly, they can be persuaded to vote. And what the Trump campaign believes is that they can alter the electorate and they can bring in white working class voters in numbers that they have not seen since 2004 or greater. The 2004 was for the high watermark uh, in recent history for those kind of voters. Um, and they believe they can outdo what Bush was able to do uh, in 2004. I doubt it, but it's, it's their theory of the case. What I'm saying is we will be surprised by something in 2020. It's not going to be, yep, we knew that it was this group versus that group. I wish that we could go back and talk to the people. Do you remember after uh, John Kerry lost, when Democrats were so stunned, even though the polls had predicted it consistently, that when John Kerry lost in 2004, if you go back and read the New York Times that week, and the stories are basically this, Democrats must embrace a moderate mantle. 
to win nationally. God's guns and gays, and they need these NASCAR dads, and they've got to do it. So it's going to be Hillary Clinton, or it might be Mark Warner, and they're shortlisting already right after the loss. We've, they've got to move to the right and appeal to those folks. You know what no one said? Oh, I think we should pick Barack Hussein Obama, uh, a freshman senator who's going to amass the most liberal voting record. Americans will vote for very conservative people. They will vote for very liberal people, but they always vote for a person. And Americans disliked Donald Trump less than they disliked Hillary Clinton. They liked Barack Obama more than they liked Mitt Romney. Voters just aren't as ideological as we are. Well, and, and actually, that's a really important point that I think also got lost after the 2016 um, upset, uh, which is that those Im those impressionable voters can be Im impressed upon in the very final moments of any campaign. And as you said, in this in the case of Hillary, it was Comey. Um, but there could be something like that just a few weeks before this election that could shift those voters as well. I will say at least Obama did not make the horrible uh, mistake uh, of windsurfing. But there, I, 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 I like this idea because it does. It's the, you know, who do you want to have a beer with argument, which you're not allowed to say anymore because that's evidently misogynistic. But, um, you know, who do you want to have, I don't know, tequila with whoever it is. Well, that would be Biden because of Despacito. But that that idea, I think, is why that's why people I'm sorry. Sorry, <laughs> I can't get over the Despacito. I think the idea that um, the debates are going to be something really crucial this time might be part of that because they've both Trump and, I mean, we know Trump, but Biden ha really hasn't been out there doing a lot of retail politics or rallies or the kinds of things where you see him um, as average Joe, as he likes to call himself. And, you know, the frailty questions about him, I think, have become exacerbated because of that. Um so I, I just wonder if we'll see something two weeks before Election Day that might uh, factor in. But I'm curious if you think the early voting is going to shift that dynamic in a way it didn't four years ago. So like 60 percent of votes in 2018 were cast early uh, or uh, by mail. Uh, this is a long term trend that will be accelerated by the Rona. It, it is. And I don't know whether we'll ever come back. Right. I lament the loss of Election Day. I think it's good to have Election Day. I think it's good as a matter of uh, a civic purpose. Go with your neighbors, go vote, go participate. I think it should be a national holiday, and I don't think we should have early voting, and I think we should limit absentee voting. But I am a curmudgeonly curmudgeon. Um, but the trend is clear. It's election month, and it's going to be very little in person as the years go by. And this year's a big intensifier of it. Democrats will do better in the early vote than they do on Election Day. Clearly, what Trump is trying to set up here is a scenario in which on election night, we're counting the votes. <clears throat> and by the way, Michigan and Pennsylvania will be slow and low in their numbers, right? It'll take forever to get the numbers out of Michigan and Pennsylvania because how they do it. And it's, you know, Trump is setting up a scenario in which it's election night and he's ahead in these states, but there's a quadrillion ballots yet to be counted. And then we do the thing where it's like, oh, they're robbing it, they're robbing it. Um, so I think mail will have an effect, not in, there's a lot of scholarly work that demonstrates that turnout does not advantage either party. One of the other shibboleths of Republican politics for generations has been low turnout is good for Republicans. You, that's one of the Republicans say is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you, we, low turnout is good. <clears throat> there's been some really interesting scholarship done in the last four years. High turnout is not good for anybody or bad for anybody. Uh, it's if it, it, and there's not evidence that it disadvantages Republicans. So I don't think, other than the fact that Trump has talked down, uh, if I were 
if I were Trump, I would be talking. I would like make sure you I do what the Republicans are doing. Get your ballot, send it in, do what you can. Um, but uh, all of that aside, I think the the reality for Republicans in this cycle is for Trump to win, he needs the conditions of the race to change, just as you say. Something has to be different. I don't know whether it's they're going to bring Eric Trump up on stage and inject him with a vaccine <laughs> in the last week. I don't Jonas know. What... Salk. It's Jonas Salk. <laughs> yes, Jonas please. All over please again. do that. <laughs> exactly. I, but you know it would be Eric. You know not, it would, it would definitely Eric. not be Ivanka. <laughs> yeah, it would not be Ivanka. She'd be like, no, Eric, you do it. I think it'll be great publicity for the organization. Um, but whatever it is that happens and, and what's interesting now, Trump is just throwing haymakers constantly every day. It's a new thing. The peace deal with the UAE, And in a way he keeps stepping on his own lines because instead of like, this is the thing. And you're like, well, let's talk about the thing. And is it this thing? And he's like, no, 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 no. This is the thing. <laughs> Joe Biden and Donald Trump are in agreement on one crucial fact about this election. Both of them want it to be about Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm not willing to give up on my nothing matters theory. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you ever will. Nihilism forever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sweet meteor of death makes a comeback. You mentioned 2018. And of course, the, 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 the extraordinary fact of 2018 was that it was a midterm turnout, the likes of which the country has really never seen. And 62 million people voted Democratic in the midterm. Now, granted, a, a large number of them were voting in California in, in a, you know, in, in, a, in jungle races. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, maybe knock three or four million off that number. Nonetheless, uh, and, and in a state that obviously Trump isn't even going to contest. Nonetheless, uh, 62 million people voted Democratic, and I think 53 million people voted Republican. Right. 118 million people voted. Never seen turnout like this before. 2014, I think, was 90 million or 88 million, something like that. So following the precept that um, the easiest way to know who's going to vote are the people who voted before and that midterm right. voters are voters and really serious voters— Biden has very little catch-up to do, right? He won, Democrats won 40 uh, districts away from Republicans. Right. And so... Um, and the Republicans are not going to win many of them back. Right. So if that's the case, then how much of the race was baked in the cake on Election Day 2018? Well, I mean, look, of the... Uh, so 80% or something... 90% of the votes in every election are already spoken for, right? And we spend all of this money and all of this time fighting over the last 10%. That's what every election is. Because as I say, most voters, the people who are most likely to vote are the people who are most likely to be ideological and therefore not persuadable. Most The people who are most likely to vote are the hardest to convince because what makes them likely to vote is their commitment to issues, precepts, and things, Right. Um, so that's, that's true every time the, what we learned from 2018, and this is the, you know, to come back to those three, <clears throat> the three nodes, 
Trump outperforms with working class white voters. Trump holds the line with uh, the traditional uh, post-war Republican uh, affluent suburbanites, does underperforms but wins. He wins the suburbs. The, remember, the electorate is more than half uh, self-identified suburban residents. <clears throat> so you have Trump outperforms working class whites, holds the line with um, the affluent, and then Hillary Clinton underperforms with African-American voters and with the traditional Democratic coalition. That's how you got there. Now, this time, what do we know? Trump is underperforming his 2016 numbers, according to polls, with working class white voters. He's had serious drop off, especially with Roman Catholics. Uh, we, I've seen some evidence in non-public polling taken for a group that demonstrates that among the church going, uh, synagogue going, people who are the, one of the best indicators, by the way, of all time about political preference is do you attend church or religious services three times a month or more, you get to like an 85% Republican number up there. It's basically Republicans and uh, uh, African-American Baptists and AME. Um, so with those voters, Trump has has stepped down. He has fallen off with those kinds of voters. So he has, he's underperforming himself in 2016 there. He is far underperforming himself and the typical Republican numbers in the suburbs. What the 2018 election was about, if you look at places like, the, the, you mentioned California, but <clears throat> if you look at California or Texas, and you see places like suburban Dallas, <clears throat> and the esteemed, your esteemed colleague Noah has written about this so perceptively and so well, these precincts, these places shouldn't be a problem for Republicans, but in 2018 they were, and nothing has changed for that. So Trump is looking to, to offset that by bringing in more working class whites. But the way that the polls could be wrong in Biden's favor, and this could be the real, this could be the real heartbreaker for Republicans. So the, the polls could be wrong in Trump's favor that the white working class voters really do turn out in larger numbers than even in 2004 and carry Trump to another narrow win where he shoots the gap and it's like, oh my gosh, can you believe he won Nevada? This is amazing. And he puts together his 200 uh, or uh, his 200 or 300 electoral votes. Again, it's amazing. Or it could be wrong because it is understated how much turnout Biden is going to get in cities uh, and that Biden ends up winning by nine. And it is just as likely, Think uh, maybe think about it this way. It's just as likely that Trump will do it again as it is that Biden will win 35 states in a 10-point, 9 or 10-point national blowout. Statistically speaking, those things are both just about as likely. Okay, so the last thing I want to ask is about this um, panic uh, in liberal precincts that the Biden campaign uh, seems to have given up on a person-to-person, hand-to-hand, get-out-the-vote strategy which we have been told in various years, particularly in 2004, uh, was the key, and in 2012, actually, was the key to surprise uh, turnout increases, right? So George W. Bush won 22% more mm -hmm. of the vote in 2004. He improved his vote by 22%. And Barack Obama, who lost 4 million votes from 2008, nonetheless was able to shift where his voters were, Yes, uh, particularly in Florida, where he ran up votes in counties that Republicans didn't even know were there, right. through technical get-out-the-vote 
hand-to-hand community strategies and that Biden, because of the coronavirus and everything like that, isn't doing it. And now and now Democrats are getting panicked. And I wonder whether, given what the way you are describing the race, whether um, the Biden campaign, which I think has been pretty canny <laughs> thus far, though, of course, it's only it was only really working inside the Democratic framework, Democratic Party's framework, um, is husbanding its resources and saying, our theory here is that this is a, you know, we need to run up the vote where Hillary didn't run up the vote, where if she yes. got more in Detroit, whatever Trump got in Michigan, that would have been fine. You know, if, if you get it in Milwaukee, screw right. you what in, Trump you, it, well. you, incre- you increase turnout in Milwaukee, Detroit, and Philadelphia by 1%, right. and Trump loses. Right. So, so they presumably are using all kinds of stratagems that don't involve doorbell ringing to get those urban people to vote. I don't know what those strategies are because I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not up on it. A lot of text. Right. We'll get a lot of text. Yeah. So, so, um, are democratic, are people liberals, Democrat, you know, people who live to be terrified that things aren't going their way and all that. Are they right to be worried or are they not, are they, are they showing too little faith in a campaign that actually, if you think about it, did an absolutely astoundingly brilliant job of winning the democratic nomination more easily than anyone has won it, uh, you know, yeah, uh, since in an John open Kerry. field yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. Since Kerry. Uh, well, first I would say political consultants are the worst. They are the worst because when they screw up, they say, well, it wasn't the strategy, it was the candidate. And when they win, they say, oh, and the candidate, it was our great strategy. I heard so much from those chuckleheads in the Obama campaign about their Colorado get out the vote effort and all of their charts. And you remember Hillary's thing where they had their uh, uh, logarithm in Brooklyn and they all sit around drinking flat whites and looking at monitors and being like, oh, it's just amazing. We are so great. I'm glad we spent $2 billion on this. And political consultants are the worst because they never take the blame when it goes wrong. And when it goes right, they say, well, that was our door knocking. That we did that. That was, that was us. Thank God we were here to save you. Um, so I am always view with skepticism postmortems that are sourced to the political consultants who cultivate political reporters and they, I, I am friends with some of these people, but I always have to say, I'm not listening to you because you're going to blow yourself up. You're going to hype your own game. Um, so I, I, I salt liberally all of that, all that business. Um, that having been said, Joe Biden, you guys, we talked before about um, that, that Trump isn't just running against Biden. He's running against urban unrest. Biden is running against coronavirus. So what Biden does in this very, like, mannered, overly mannered, uh, very deliberate, kabuki coronavirus routine that he does, please step away, socially distant, no touching, mask is on, spray everyone down, all of that stuff. He's trying to send, he's trying, this is the semiotics of we are, we fear the corona, we care about the corona. It's the number one issue with voters. It's the number one issue with our voters for women, for minorities, for middle-class voters, this is the top concern. So we're going to act really, really, really concerned about it and not going door to door 
is part of it because the thinking is I show up in the door and you're like, ah, get out of my face. Why are you here? Just don't do that. So there's some logic to it, but there's also some logic. And we saw the story. I know the one you're referring to about Sarah Gideon in Maine and other down ballot Democrats who are like, we have to go door to door because people expect it. And I would say this, if I'm the Biden campaign, I realize that one of my advantages over Hillary is that I'm able to react. I'm able to respond. Hillary couldn't respond. We know all the stories about the times that Hillary Clinton refused to change her approach in 2016. My favorite, of course, were the, I think they were SEIU members who were going to pack up an Iowa and head to Michigan and Brooklyn ordered them back to Iowa to waste their time. <laughs> Why did they have to go back to Iowa to waste their time? Otherwise, people might think Michigan is competitive. Wait a minute. Hold on a second here, folks. Uh, so Biden is not beholden to that and he can change. So if you want to go do some door knocking to like satisfy the, the Politico writers and blah, blah, you can, it doesn't cost you much and you can go do that. I just think that if I'm Biden, until I see evidence that it's hurting me, I'm going to, I'm going to try to stay the course as much as possible. He course corrected on campaigning in person. He course, he course corrected on talking about, uh, violence in the cities he has he has been willing to listen, but you want to be careful not to not to, not to be John Kerry, and that's how John Kerry lost because there was no John Kerry there. He got buffaloed into taking uh, what's his name with the hair and the the pervy stuff. John uh, Edwards. John, John Edwards. Ed- uh, that he got could buff- really fit so many politicians. You have <laughs> to be more specific. That, that, co- that covers a lot. A lot. Yeah. You know, the guy with the hair and the pervy stuff. <laughs> oh, <laughs> also, everybody, raise your hand. Uh, but but. Kerry lost because he windsurfed his way through all of it. Well, I was for it before I was against it and all that stuff. Biden has to be careful on that side. But yeah, he can course correct if he wants okay, to. But the, here's, here's where something that happened recently that Biden did struck me as being a weird kind of uh, signaling to those, those uh, suburban lady voters on coronavirus who remain fearful because we've looked at the polls about, you know, will you go to the movie theater? How do you feel about your kids returning to school? They're shifting, obviously, from where they were in the spring and the summer. Sure. But um, he, when he talked about his skepticism about the vaccine the other day, that struck me as perfectly pitched to that particular audience that he is really appealing to from 2018 because those ladies are all like you know they all go on Gwyneth Paltrow's goop website and you know buy their weirdo you know uh, back to nature stuff and there is a healthy skepticism about new medicine some of them are extreme anti-vaxxers but there's a broad middle that's just like I don't know I want to wait and see I mean you see you saw this with any rollout of any vaccine there was a whole group of moms that did this when the HPV vaccine came out for example. So I I read that people were like, oh, how you know hypocritical. He says he's the party of science and now he's casting aspersions on a vaccine. But I read that as a very uh, savvy political targeting move on his part that definitely would appeal to those ladies. The trouble with bubbles is that you, uh, uh, the, the Pauline Kael syndrome afflicts us so badly now. And that when Republicans hear Joe Biden say, or Cal Cunningham, running in North Carolina against Tom Tillis said, I don't know about a vaccine. It was like, how dare you not take a vaccine, sir? Are you against the science? And then I look at the polls and I'm like, actually, a lot of people and maybe a majority in some cases agree. You know, Trump, uh, it it is hackneyed to say, he says the quiet part out loud. But when we think about handling the vaccine and the treatment of the vaccine, he has almost guaranteed that people will view it dubiously 
because of how he, oh, we may have by a very special day. I don't want to say which day, but maybe it starts with an E. Maybe it's in November. Maybe there'll be a vaccine. And you're like, I don't know. And then the big one, and Bill Gates pointed to this the other day, when the CDC blew it in overhyping um, uh, blood plasma transfusions and then had to come back the next day and say, like, yeah, we overhyped it. There's a reason to keep your chocolate out of your peanut butter. The, this, every administration fools around with this stuff, like the Republicans famously, or I don't know about famously, filed against Barack Obama an ethics complaint about him using uh, presidential travel to campaign in 2012, and this is an abuse. And it's also quaint now where you have a convention at the White House. Um, but the, every president does it, right? You, things get mixed up, especially in election years, and, and what is a campaign effort and what isn't. But man, with a vaccine, with a public health scare, you would want to be cleaner than Caesar's wife. You would want to stay as far away from that thing and hope for the best. And it's not like you have to say. It's not like you have to say to your appointees, boy, it would be helpful if this happened in time for the election, guys. They know. <laughs> they already know. Yeah. And I've thought a lot about, as a very weird person, in 1976, Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford's situation is a lot like Donald Trump's situation. Um, but uh, 1976 and the swine flu. And with the help of Jonas Salk and that Jerry Ford rams through a swine flu vaccine and it's a disaster. People get sick. People are unhappy about it. And they blame Ford for it. And they blame Ford for mishandling the situation because he got right out on top of it. And I think Trump could be suffering from some of the same stuff here. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, just a month or two ago, the talk was that Trump is going to. Uh, drop a vaccine right before the 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 uh, election, and that's going to be his big move. I think at this point, the the vaccine is a total loser for Trump. Even if hope against hope, if remarkably he did do just that, um, it would take one negative reaction, five negative react, anything, anything. Um, and. It, and it would be a total disaster. He, I think he should drop the vaccine entirely. I don't, I don't agree with that. But I, I mean, I actually think that, you know, three, four days of headlines about how oh, uh, yeah. a, a, an effective vaccine has happened and can now be administered and all of that instantly removes COVID. As an, then it becomes, you're, then you're complaining about something that's already starting, even though it's going to take a year for everybody to get the vaccine. It's, a, it's in the rearview mirror, it's which, hope. by the way, but I also don't know how they, if there's going to be a vaccine in the next five weeks, I think we would be hearing more oh. about how there was, you know, there would be leaks from labs about what they're seeing with the, you know. But, with the and also, if you're the one of these, studies. if you're one of these pharmaceutical companies, do you bring out the vaccine on Trump's timetable? Right. Is that what you want to do? Or do you think that might actually hurt sales and might ac actually hurt your credibility? Maybe you decide that it's better to not rush it or not. Like if, if, if your team, not that they're going to, I'm not accusing anybody of, of malfeasance here, <laughs> but if it's like, Hey boss, do you want to, we can probably, you know, jam this out and have it come out on Halloween or we can do this and have it come out right before Thanksgiving. I might say, Let's not take any, given how politicized this is, let's not take any chances here. And I think that, I, but I, John, I definitely agree that uh, several sustained days of thank God 
the vaccine has arrived. And yes, it's going to take until the end of 2021 before the vaccine can be administered to regular people and it's going to be a long rollout. But thank God the vaccine is here. The amount of relief that that will bring would be a huge plus. So Chris Thierwalt, I want to say, I want to tell everybody uh, who are, who's listening to me that uh, they should go to Amazon and buy your book, Every Man a King. Oh. The delightful, absolutely delightful history of American populism. Um, I mean, I, it's obviously not a topic that ordinarily people say, you know, it's delightful American It's delightful. It's <laughs> but in fact... William Jennings Bryan. That ooh, cuddly yeah. Father Conklin. <laughs> but, 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 it, but in fact, um, it is... Uh, the history of American populism is an extremely colorful, interesting, cross-partisan, cross-ideological uh, phenomenon um, uh, that is a, you know, tells an entire story, an American story, in a, and, and you do it in really a wonderful way. So please go to Amazon, Every Man and King by Chris Darwalt, Fox News's political editor. It's been fantastic to have you. It's been amazing. And uh, you really, you knocked it out of the park with the goose and pate analysis. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and this is one of the reasons that I so love listening to your uh, podcast with, with, uh, with Dana, because you're just, you're, you're coming up with similes, metaphors, you know, uh, that are just, um, are, are entirely original. And, you know, it's a, it's, that's a, a really, a, a great, great thing. Um, and, uh, and I, I'm still going to go with the nothing matters, but, uh, I, I like to, I want to pretend that I believe that, you know, the American people are, you know, are, are, are full of radiocination and are really going to study this election. No, 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 no. I didn't I, say that. What they're no, going to do is at the end, these people we're talking about at the end, are going to say, eh, Biden, I guess is fine. <laughs> yeah, right. That's <laughs> nah, nah, Okay. So we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, uh, Christine and the absent Noah Rothman. I'm John Pothorz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>